Okay, last Sunday morning, uh, we finished our sermon series in the Old Testament book of Malachi. So the question, of course, arises, what next? What next? If we've just finished the sermon series. We're entering into the summer months, of course, when so many of our congregation are away on holiday. Perhaps it wouldn't be the wisest thing in the world for me to launch into a new a sermon series in a book of the Bible. So what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? What are we going to do next as a congregation? Well, this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to pause for a moment and reflect on a subject with which I assume that we struggle. And we're going to consider this morning a, 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 an incredibly important, but yet a really, really difficult area of the Christian life. Friends, this morning we're going to consider prayer, but much more specifically and precisely, we're going to consider the content of our prayer. What should we as Christians be praying for? What should we pray for? And as soon as I say that to you, I hope that you're immediately with me and you're on board. Are you not... I mean, don't we know in our heart of hearts that we're perhaps not praying in the way that we should? I mean, just think back to the way that you prayed last week. What do you see when you look at your own prayers? Isn't it the case that for so many of us, a lot of our prayers revolve around one word? That word, help. That our prayers are really brief a lot of the time. And aren't they often so kind of self orientated. Who do we pray for, friends? Who do you pray for? Don't we pray for ourselves? Don't we pray for the people that are really close to us, our close-knit community, our family? We know, I think, in our heart of hearts, we're not praying in a sufficient and biblical way. So, for what should the people of God pray? Well, to answer that, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this section we've just read in Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to look together at the content of a biblical prayer. So we've got in front of us a prayer that none other than the Apostle Paul has prayed. So we're going to look at this and see what we learn. Let me do this though, right at the start. Let me just give to you the structure of the sermon. Let me give to you the headings so we can work through this section of scripture together first thing that we're going to consider is the personality of Paul's prayer. So we're going to look at this and think about what's the character of this How does this man approach his God? You see? The personality of the prayer. Then we're going to think about the petition. What, what exactly is it that Paul asks for? What does Paul pray? The content of the prayer? What's the petition? And then the third thing that we're going to see, providing we've got time this morning, is the purpose of... Why does Paul pray for the things that he does? So, boys and girls, if I was to put you to the test, what have I just said? What were the three? Ah, oh, see, that's a difficult one, see? And now you realize you were supposed to be listening. So the personality of Paul's prayer, the petition of Paul's prayer, and the purpose of Paul's prayer. Friend, have you got Ephesians 3 in front of you? Then let's look at the personality of Paul's prayer, shall we? 
Um, and here what I want to do is just draw your attention to just one or two things about how this man approaches God. How does he go to God in prayer? I just want to just highlight, with a highlighter pen if you like, some of the approaches, the details here. The first one really is the motivation that Paul shows us for, for prayer. Now, friends, why should it be that you and I, as the people of God, why should we pray? If you had to answer that, what would you say? Why, why would you, why are we supposed, why do we, what's the incentive we've got to pray? How would you, because of our need? You might say that to me. You might say we pray just out of the nature of who our God is. That should force us to pray, right? There's some incentive. Why should we pray? Why should we pray? Well, if you look at verse 14, to the very start of our section, what do you see? Do you notice the expression that Paul has here? He says, about prayer, he says, for this reason I pray. This is the reason I pray. So what do we all think? We're all like, well, what's the reason then? What, what is your motivation for praying? Well, keep your eyes down and look at the start of chapter 3 itself. Now you look at verse 1, it's like playing snap, isn't it? What do you have? You've got exactly the same phrase. Paul says at the beginning of the chapter, he says, for this reason. Now get this, what Paul seems to have done here, he seems at the start of chapter 3 to be writing about prayer. Okay? He seems just to be about to write about prayer. And then what happens? Paul, in a, in a sense, with reverence, he kind of, he gets distracted you see the idea? Right at the start of chapter 3, he's saying, for this reason I pray, and then he goes off in this tangent, he goes off in this parenthesis, only to come back to this idea about prayer in our section. Now, what does that tell you, friend? It tells you that if you want to find out the reason, you have to go before chapter 3 and into chapter 2. And since this morning, Adrian, in his goodness, has read to us, Ephesians chapter 2. What do we know in here? We know the motivation Paul has to pray. We know the reason. What is the reason? Friends, what do you see in chapter 2? The reason for his prayer is the glory of the gospel of Christ Jesus. That's what you saw in chapter 2, wasn't it? Like the reason that Paul is praying here is the wonders of grace and he is he has spoken of what Christ has done, and he's spoken of God making a Jew and a Gentile one body, and has spoken of Christ as the cornerstone. You see it? It's this. He speaks of the glory of the gospel, and then he says, now I pray. Now I must pray. And I think right here, right now, there is a practical lesson for you and for me, isn't there? Because I wonder if what I just said a moment ago in any way rings true for you. That you, as you sit here in church this morning, you know it is true of your life that you are struggling to pray. And in fact, it boils down your life for this. A struggle for the motivation to pray. Is that where you're at? Struggling as a Christian to try and get up that little bit earlier on a Monday morning and, and spend some time before God and some time in prayer? Is that you? Do you see though now, do you see what God is handing you in Ephesians? God is giving you this morning the solution to that. And what is he saying? He's saying you need motivation. Then you must consider the good news. 
But this is no nonsense. This is not just verbiage. That the more that you consider the cross of Calvary on a daily basis, it's not so much the more you will pray, it's the more you will long to pray. That if you meditate upon what Christ has done and gone through for you and the application of that salvation, what is yours, this heavenly future, you are going to burn with a desire for the communion with God. So will we not, as a people, do that even this week? Will you not spend more time meditating upon the gospel? And then what? For that reason... Will you not be found in communion with your God in prayer? So we have the motivation. Paul shows us the motivation to pray. But then you've also got to notice, don't you? The posture of prayer. Have a look down. Look at verse 14. How does he pray? What's his posture? He bows to his knees in prayer. Um, I think I've done this before, but I, I would love a survey of the church to know how we pray. Like, what is the posture? I think in the past, I've spoken to the boys and girls about this. How do we pray? What do we do? Do we sit at the end of our bed? Are we lying down falling asleep? And before we, how do, maybe you do this. Maybe you bow. I think what we have to appreciate is just how unusual this posture was in the ancient world. When you think about the testimony of Scripture... How did the Pharisees pray? How did the religious leaders and rabbis pray? We know this. What did they do? They did this. They stood, didn't they, to pray. This is incredibly unusual that Paul would talk about falling to his knees in prayer. So we ask, don't we, why are you doing it? And why emphasize it? Why? You? Well, look at Scripture. Paul in his goodness tells you the answer. Look at verse 15. Why does Paul bow? He bows because God is the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named or created. He's bowing because God is the one who is able to answer prayers according to the riches of his glory. Do you see the answer? Why is he, why is he on his knees and why is he bowing? It's because he is not speaking to his colleague about Love Island. And Paul here is not on the phone to his sibling or his friends about what they were doing earlier this week. Why has he fallen to his knees? Because he is addressing the Lord God Almighty. Isn't that why he's on his knees? He knows that he is a sinner and he is before the one who has created the heavens. The one who is, think of it, the solar system brought into being with a word. And Paul knows as what a man of iniquity. He, he must bow. He must bow. And again, I'm saying to you, isn't there a lesson there for, for us as a church? Because isn't it true that there is this just great disparity, a contrast between the way that we pray and the way that the people of God have prayed right throughout the centuries? Isn't there a disparity there? I mean, think about the people praying in the Bible. Godly men and godly women. How do they pray? Oh, they tear their robes and they fall to the ground before... Oh, wait a minute. What about the prayers of church history? Have you ever read some of these Puritan prayers or the prayers of the Reformers? Have you ever read any of these things? Do you know what they do? They wax lyrical about the greatness of God. 
And they speak and they speak of their unworthiness before the majesty and the splendor of God. Before all of this, before there's even a hint of any sort of petition. And how do you pray? And how do I pray? How have we prayed this week? Aren't our prayers characterized by this kind of flippancy towards God? Jesus, I just want to say this to you. You see it? Do you? Isn't it characterized by this just just irreverence before Almighty God? Friends, surely we see here that this coming week, before you bow to your knees before God, what should you do? You should pause and consider just who it is you are about to address in prayer. And I don't know, maybe it should be the case that you and I, on occasion, do what Paul's here. Maybe, should we, on occasion at home, the door closed behind us, should we not just fall to our knees and bow to the majesty of God? Then we also have to notice the familiarity in Paul's prayer. So I want to put the boys and the girls to the test. Um, if the boys and girls can look at verse 14, really simple question. Or maybe before you look, you can think if you know the answer. What does Paul call God in prayer? Is it the Lord Most High? The eternal God, sovereign God? What does he call God in prayer? Verse 14. Anyone? Yes. Paul calls God Father. And I know you're familiar with that idea, but isn't it spectacular? And don't we just need to linger up just for a moment? Yes, you and I as the people of God, surely we do need to come into God's presence and we do need to bow and there's got to be this reverence and there's got to be this awe. But what is true of you and me in Christ Jesus? This great God is not unknown. Isn't it stunning in Christ Jesus, this God to whom we pray? He is not unfamiliar. He is not unpredictable. We, like the Apostle Paul, in Christ Jesus, we can call this God, Dad, Abba, Father. That even just now, I'm speaking to you here. Do you know what is true in the, in the heavenly realms? Right now, Almighty God longs to hear you. Isn't that a thought? That triune God in heaven and he's, and he's longing, he's, he's, he's wanting to hear from his children in prayer. It's a glorious thought, isn't it? Paul calls God Father and in Christ Jesus, you, me, we can do the same thing. Now, are you hot? <laughs> I'm hot. 30 degrees is not the, uh, it's not the optimum temperature for a Scotsman uh, to have to preach in. Okay, but we're doing okay so far. This is the only occasion that should I faint uh, up here in the heat that you are allowed to throw water on me. The only occasion that you're allowed to do it. But we've seen the personality of prayer. Let's move on in the text to consider the petition of Paul's prayer. The petition of Paul's prayer. Now, I think we know, don't we, that the desire for power is one of the chief desires of the fallen human heart. What do fallen men want? They want power, don't they? We see this in politics on either side of the pond, don't we? We see it in the church. 
the desire for power. We also, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, we see that desire for power even within our own hearts. So in light of that, isn't it quite unusual and striking to see the content of the prayer here? Look at verse 16 with me, friend. Please look there. What does Paul pray? He prays that the Ephesians might be strengthened with power. Now that raises, it's praying for Christians to have power. That raises all sorts of questions. Let me just try and pick it apart. First of all, you and I have to try and think about the origin of this power. And I'm hot, as I've said, so I'm going to turn it over to you. You can do the thinking and I can sit back. See, in the society in which we live, where is it that people think power is found? Your friends and the people that you work with, your colleagues, your family, our culture, where do, where do they think that power, true power, is located? I mean, just think about the self-help books that litter the, the bestseller list in the United Kingdom. Where do people think power is located? Within. It's not the case that certainly in London, certainly amongst my friends, they think power... Look, come on, you've done this. You've all been flicking through Facebook. And that crazy friend or relative has uploaded that picture of a sunset or a picture of, I don't know, a skyline and it's got a text printed across it and it'll be, believe in yourself, you know? Or it'll be, you are stronger than you know. You, anything is possible to you. Isn't that right? We've all seen that sort of thing, haven't we? Our culture believes that real power is found within the human heart and the human life. Look at what Paul says, though. He says in verse 16, he prays that these Ephesian Christians will be strengthened with power from where? From through the Holy Spirit of God. You see the lesson. You don't have power. We don't have power within us. Lasting power, real, true power is only located, only comes from God. But if we've got the origin, then we have to note the result of this power. Because what does Paul say will happen? I wonder if I could get everyone to look at verse 17, even if the boys and girls look at it. This is critical. Why? What, what's the result of this power? He says, he prays, oh, Lord, would they have power so that... Now, read it very carefully and think it through if you're a Christian here. So that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. And I hope, if you're switched on this morning and you're a Christian, maybe it is that you're scratching your head. In a sense, I hope you are. Do you see why? Paul writing of Christians and his prayer for Christians is that Christ would dwell in their hearts. Come on, if we're theologically literate, if we know our Bibles, what do we know? These Ephesian Christians, they already have Christ dwelling in their hearts. Isn't that what happens in salvation and regeneration? The Holy Spirit comes. God comes to dwell where? In our own life, right? Don't you scratch your head and think, this seems a bit strange. Paul praying that Christ will come dwell, he will dwell in the hearts of people who are already Christians. What's this mean? Well, let me try and explain it by way of an illustration that I have stolen from somebody else. But it's a good illustration and I've modified it. So I'm having it. It's mine. Now, 
years ago, many, many years ago, uh, my wife and I, Catherine and I, bought a very little house in a Scottish ex-mining town called Inverkeething. Have you ever been to Inverkeething before? Never. Go to Inverkeething ever. Avoid it. Inverkeething is not a particularly nice uh, place. And you see the house that we bought, it was disgusting as, as well. And, and it really was. It really was. And, and you can imagine it maybe, you know the sort of quintessential idea of a doer-upper? And you go in and the decor is kind of uh, migraine-inducing decor. It's disgusting. In every room as well. So what do we do, do you think? You know, we're a newly married couple with lots of energy. What do we do? We try and fix the place up, don't we? You know, you, you, you go in each room and you sort of think about what needs to be... You do a bit of DIY and then you paint each room in the colours that, that Catherine likes or that I like and you put up photos and you put up... Don't you? Don't you? And, 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 and you see the idea, do you, that you could say the day that we got the, the, the keys from the estate agent... You know, we took possession of that house, right? But it was only after this long, (laughs) believe me, long, drawn-out process of repair, renovation, over a long period of time, that what could you say? We made that house our own. Do you see it? Isn't that what Paul is saying here? Yes. The Ephesians have Christ dwelling in their hearts. But what is he praying at this moment here? He is praying that Christ would increasingly come to dwell within these people. Just that he is praying at this moment in Ephesians that Christ Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would renovate them. You know, restore them, praying that they would be so strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit that these Ephesian believers would come to reflect over time and through this repairing what... The character and the personality of the one who dwells within them. And I pray that you see that, but I also pray that you see the practical application in here. Do you see what God is giving you this morning? Friend, God is giving you a template for your prayers. And so I'm going to do this, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to set us all as a congregation a task for this week. Friend, if you're a Christian, would you not every day this week pray this sort of prayer for your own heart? Would you do that? Would you pray that you are strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit of God? Would we pray that we are so strengthened by the Holy Spirit that it changes everything about our lives, that we are transformed by Jesus, that our motives are transformed, that the way you think about other people is transformed, that the way you speak about other people and to other people transformed, your actions transformed, and why all that you and me might come to reflect the one who is living within our hearts. That is what Paul prays. And is that not what you and I should pray at LCPC? I think it is. And then we're going to close with us. Boys and girls, what was the first point of the sermon? Personality. Second point? 
petition? Got the right answer. The last thing is to see here the purpose of the prayer. I think if you're um, a member of London City Presbyterian Church, you really know by now how a, a sermon ends. There's something of a crescendo at the end of a sermon, isn't there? Isn't there? Normally what we might do is pose a question and then we'll look at a few bits and pieces from the text and we'll be building up, building up to the answer and to the conclusion right at the end. Isn't that how a sermon usually works? Let's do something different. Let's flick that on the head. Let's start out here with the answer and the conclusion that Paul gives. So the question I'm asking is, why is he praying this? Like he's praying for power. Why? What is the purpose of the prayer? Do you see the conclusion? Do you see the answer in verse 19? He prays all of this that the Ephesian Christians might know. Now, do you see it? Look at the text. What do you see? That they might know the love of Christ. That's everything. Like That's why Paul has come back from this parenthesis. That's why he's come back from the tangent. That is the content. That is the purpose of it. Why? That these Ephesians might know more of the love of Christ. Now, I just, it's simple, I just want to draw your attention. Oh, one or two things here. Notice the scale of the love. Look at verse 18. I'm sure Letitia will appreciate that. And any other architects in the room. Look at it. Paul speaks of dimensions. Doesn't he? He speaks of height and breadth and depth and love. And there's all manner of ideas that are kicking about in commentaries and scholarship about what do these dimensions refer to? But you know the answer. Don't you? You look back. You see elsewhere in Scripture. You look back to Romans 8. What is what is Paul doing? He's emphasizing through dimensions the scale of Christ's love for his people. He's saying this is a A marvelous love. This is a magnificent love. This is a vast love. He says here, it surpasses even human understanding, the love of Christ for his church. And then I think we eventually land on the most important thing. Because we see here that this experience of love is to be a communal thing. A communal thing. And with this, I've got a face facts, I think. I've got to face the downside of what we are doing in here this morning. Like, if if we were to approach Ephesians 3 in the way that we normally do as a church, and if we were to approach this text as part of a long sermon series, if we took a a, a long run-up at this text, do you know what would be happening right now at this very moment? All of you would have the main theme squarely in view. If we took a long run-up, we would all right now be thinking about the unity of the body of Christ. We would have seen that all the way weaving its way through the previous chapters, the unity of the body of Christ. And I've got to face facts. We can't do that. I can't squeeze a sermon series into this today. But even if you bear that theme in mind, doesn't it color your understanding of the text? Because look at what Paul says here. Now look at it in verse 18. He doesn't just say, I long for you to know the love of Christ. He prays, and this is his prayer, the Apostle Paul's prayer. He says that they may come to comprehend together with all of the saints 
the love of Christ. Do you see it? He's not praying that these individual Ephesians would know the knowledge of the love of Jesus. He's praying that the church in Ephesus would know it. He's praying that the body of Christ, the congregation, would know together the love of Jesus. And I think that leaves us with the last lesson today. Because I wonder if what I said right at the start is true of you this morning, Christian friends. That you know that your prayers are too selfish. Is that true? Do you know in the way that you pray, the evidence of your prayer life, that you're praying too much for yourself, too much for those around you? It's too insular and self-orientated. Is that true? Do you see what God is doing? Is he not prompting you to widen out your prayers? And who do you pray for? Friends, we at London City Presbyterian Church should pray for each other. There is nothing wrong with you praying for your family. But you must also pray for your family of faith. You pray for the people in here that you don't like. Pray for the people you don't naturally gravitate toward. Pray for the people who sit around you. Pray for the visitors that we get. And for what do we pray? Surely Paul would scream at us. We pray for a mutual experience of the love of God in this place. We pray for a congregation, church-wide knowledge and experience of the love of Jesus. And I I want to end with this thought. There are people in this room who perhaps are not Christians. And I wonder what you think just now. You sat through a long sermon in a hot room and it's a sermon about prayer. And you're sitting there thinking, I'm bored. What has this got to do with me? I'm not even a Christian. Prayer. I want you to hear this. If, my non-Christian friend, you were to any believer in here just now, do you know what they would say to you? They would say that the greatest thing in all of the world is to know the love of God. They would say that better than luxuries, better than holidays, better than money, better than career advancement is to know the closeness and the nearness of the Lord Jesus Christ as their friend and saviour. The greatest thing in all the world is the love of Christ. And I have to stand in front of you if you're not a believer and I have to say this to you. You know nothing of that love. You know not even a drop of what it tastes like to know the saving love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Outside of repentance and faith, that love of God is entirely and completely alien to you. So you know what to pray for, don't you? Surely the content of your prayer this morning is to pray to this great God for forgiveness for your sin. There is the content of your prayer. If you do that this morning, then you will come to a knowledge and experience of the love of Jesus Christ. And you will know what a marvelous thing it is when a sinner's heart is indwelt by the almighty, eternal Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we cannot help but notice that this wonderful prayer from the Apostle Paul for power resulting 
in that knowledge of love in Christ ends with a benediction that Paul cannot help but praise the name of his triune God. So that is how we end. We worship you and we praise you that these things are not the thoughts of man, but the truths of the Almighty God. We thank you that you dwell in the hearts of your people and how we pray that you would move amongst those who do not know you, that you might, by grace, set up home within sinners' hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.